0: Wonderful. Well, in January, we're heading back into our series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. As a local church, unless you have visited, you'll realize that we're in the process of going through the Gospel of John. We've been in John since about March last year, and I guess we'll be in it till around the end of July this year. But through the summer, we thought it'd be good to continue the series Sanctifying the Ordinary, where we're just taking real ordinary things and beginning to preach on them and open them up and help us see by God's grace how extraordinary a lot of things are. And so we've looked at friendship, we looked at words, we looked at disappointment, decisions and all those types of things, just, just average run-of-the-mill things in our lives. But today I want us to look at the Bible. Now, I'm aware as I say that, you think, oh my gosh, there's nothing ordinary about the Bible. You know, Dave, I can't believe you're preaching on the Bible in a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. And I agree with you, there is nothing ordinary about the Bible. And yet also, having been a Christian in a long time, I think in all reality, one of the things that we're always fighting as Christians is the temptation to think of the Bible as completely ordinary. And the way we interact with the Bible and the way sometimes we can have a habit of leaving it on the shelf between Sunday 1 o'clock and the Sunday after 8 o'clock in the morning. What we're saying there is the Bible's just ordinary. It's no big deal. And so I believe the Lord wants to open our eyes to really how incredible the Bible is, how extraordinary the Bible is. And so if you turn, please, to Psalm 1, that's where we're going to spend our time. This morning. It's the Wisdom Psalm. And the psalmist writes as follows. Blessed is the man... In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that not only do you present yourself, you give us your words to re speak, to retell, to re understand, and to allow truths to be built and permeated into our hearts and beings. And Lord, I pray at the start of this year, would that be the case with this psalm? Father, would you have your way in our lives? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? that we may behold the wonders of what you have written here. So, Lord, give me grace. Give these guys grace to hear. Have your way amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation for today and this message, I was considering afresh John chapter 10. We preached it a few months ago, and it's the whole bit about where Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. I just think it's such a fascinating piece of scripture where he talks about how he is indeed the incredible shepherd. He knows his sheep. His sheep know him. And how he will lay his life down for his sheep. I Just think the whole context and premise as he preaches to the disciples and preaches to the crowds of how caring he is towards us as a shepherd is simply overwhelming. And yet it's verse 10 of chapter 10 that really stands out for me. In verse 10 of chapter 10, he says, "...the thief comes only to steal." And kill and destroy, talking of Satan. But I came that they may have life and that in abundance. That truth truly delights my soul. Because that is a profound truth. Satan comes only to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come, I have come as the Son of God, I have come down from the riches of heaven to take on flesh and to win people and to die in their place. Why? So that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's why I've come. For all these people who are running away from me, from all these people who have rejected me, I'm running after them so that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's an incredible truth, don't you think? And yet as Christians, I think it's a truth that sometimes takes time To go from our theological head to our heart of real living. Because I think if we're honest, so many questions, although we hear the truth that he's come to give us life and that in abundance, we still wonder, how is that so? How How do I experience that life? Because... My life as a Christian doesn't seem to be that much of abundance. So what is he on about in terms of he's come to give life and that in abundance? He's clearly offering a life that you would never turn away from, that you'd be mesmerized by, that you'd be absolutely amazed that you get to have. So how do I experience that? How do we experience that life? You see, we can't earn it, right? You can never earn your salvation. You can never earn grace. Jesus Christ has earned grace on the cross in our place. And he's the only one who has done it. Nothing can be added to his work. You may read your Bible. You may pray. You may reach out. You may do all these things that God has called us to do. And we should. But none of those things will ever, ever earn God's grace. The only way God blesses you and pursues you and keeps to lavish mercy and grace on you is because of the death and resurrection of his son alone. And yet you can position yourself to experience his grace. You can't earn it, but you can position yourself to experience His grace. And with that in mind, I want to introduce you to the man of Psalm 1. See, there's many things we don't know about this bloke. There are a lot of things that we just don't get told. But therein lies part of the point. This man does not appear to be a famous man. He's not a famous musician. He's not a famous scholar. He doesn't appear to be a king. The point in the lack of knowledge about this man is he's just like us. He's just a man. He's just a guy. He's just a person, an individual. He, he knows what it is to live in a world and get sick. He knows what it is to live in a world and have sorrows. He knows what it is to live in a world and suffer pain. He lives in the same world that we do, and he struggles with sin in the same way we do. But we do know something distinct about this man. Verse 1, part A, we learn that this man is Blessed. He is blessed. You know, the Hebrew word there, Barach, it just means supremely happy. It's actually in the plural because what he's trying to do is help us see that he's not just like some happy guy. He's like really, really, really happy. That's why he puts it in the plural. It's like it's got numerous S's on the end of it because he wants us to intensify this and he wants to multiply this word happiness. This man is experiencing a profound happiness rooted in moral, mental, and physical well-being. This man is truly blessed. Jesus came to give life, and that in abundance. And we can simply say that this man seems to be experiencing that. He is supremely happy. And what you then find as the psalm goes on wonderfully, is you find out why. You find out what he's doing to position himself to experience this incredible life. You see, this blessedness didn't just happen by accident. He didn't just wake up in the morning and go, oh my gosh, I'm just blessed. It didn't work like that. He positioned himself in certain ways before the Lord. And we find out what he did in this psalm. Here's the point of this psalm. In a nutshell, in one line, this man is truly blessed because he delights in God's word and desires it to guide him in all areas of his life. You know why this man is blessed? You know why this man is supremely happy? Here's why. Because he delights in God's word and he desires it to guide him in all areas of his life. See, this man once upon a time was just like us. He was a man out of Ephesians 2. He was dead in his transgressions and sins. He willfully walked in the way of sinners just like we all did. He was opposed to God and carried out the desires of the flesh he delighted in and walked in the ways of the wicked. And accordingly, all his counselors then were the world. He just wanted the world to counsel him. He wanted, as he talks about, the wicked to counsel him. And he found pleasure and guidance in that ungodly counsel. But now through salvation, this guy's life has radically turned around. He now wants to live for God. Whether he eats or drinks or whatever he does, he wants to do it all for the glory of God. He wants to live wholeheartedly for the Lord. And so what he does then, having decided to no longer live for the world and to ensure that the world no longer be his primary guidance, he says, you know what? I'm no longer going to walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor am I going to stand in the way of scoffers, nor am I going to sit in the seat of scoffers. He's positioning himself away from the primary influence of his life being the world. And instead, he's positioning himself to experience something else. He's positioning himself before the Lord in this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is what he does. He delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And you know what the result of that is? He's blessed. He's supremely happy. In everything he does, he prospers. You want to know what this guy's like? Well, he tells us in verse 3 through the simile. He says, you know what? This guy is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This man is like a tree planted by streams of water. He is consistently refreshed and nourished by the Lord. He is stable and durable so that as he goes through the unknowns of life, he doesn't go up and down with every little thing. He He's walking solidly before the Lord on solid ground. He is flourishing and fruitful throughout all the seasons of his life and in all that he does, he prospers. This is a picture of a truly blessed man, is it not? And there should be right now for us as Christians, things going off in my mind that say, you know what, I want to be like that man. I want to be like that guy. I want to be the dude where people look at me and say, you know what, in all that he does, he prospers. I want to be the guy that goes through life, both the good times and the test of adversities. And people say, you know what, he is stable and durable. And in all things, he seems to bear fruit. He's fruitful, no matter what his circumstances are. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Well, folks, if that's your description, if that's a delight for you, if that's something you want, then here's good news for you. This psalm is written for you. This psalm is written with you in mind. C.H. Spurgeon says, It is this psalmist's intention to teach us the way of blessedness. I completely agree. You know why this psalm is here? It's written so that God can say to you, you want to be happy? You want to be supremely happy? You want to be like a man? who's like a tree, who's planted by streams of living water. You want to be like him? He is how. What we really have here in Psalm 1 is the blessed way. The pathway to blessedness. And So I have three points just as we seek to unpack this. I want to seek to care for you as a local church as we seek to embark on another fresh year together i want us to ensure that we are drilled into god's word and by god's grace are then like this blessed man so three points as we look at the blessed way here's the first one the blessed man reads Okay, as we try and learn about this man, as we try and position ourselves like this man to experience God's grace, like this man, here's number one, the blessed man reads. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did he really go to Bible college for that? I mean, it isn't very impressive. I appreciate that. But Chaucer once said, you know what, it is the greatest duty of man to repeat the obvious. That's obvious. Verse two, we read that this man meditates. I submit to you, it's hard to meditate unless you read This man's a reader. This man reads God's word. And if we desire to be blessed, my friends, then quite simply, so must we. God has not put the Bible into a movie for those of us that were born in the 80s. I was born in the 70s, by the way, but I'm just for guessing. God has not made the Bible into a movie game. God is not going to put the Bible on Facebook. He's put it right here. And we've got, to, we've got to read it. We've got to spend time reading His Word. Now, for some, that's really easy because you love reading. For some, that's a real challenge. And I would be an individual that for many years of my life fell into the latter stages of that. It is a challenge. I can read, praise God for that. But I just didn't like it. I like playing movie games. So I like playing Ghost of Goblins on the Spectrum 48K. That was how I got brought up. You know, I loved that stuff. With the five minutes loading through the Spectrum tape, and then you get to the end, you like, know, hee, hee. Did you have one of them? It's great. And then you get right to the end and you're like, error, 0.01. You're like, no! And that's the way I grew up. The only book I read growing up was He-Man. It's because I had a lot of pictures. Even GCSE English, I read the back cover and then went in for the exam and got a B plus. How that happened, I only know. But it worked. I just didn't like reading because reading was a challenge for me. I didn't enjoy it. And so I brought that into the Christian faith too. Got given a Bible and you think, oh my, there's not a lot of pictures in here, and is there a movie? It, it, it just didn't lend itself to me. But, but I've had to work on that in my life. And in God's grace, he, he's really helped me work on that. And now I do indeed love to read. But for many years of my life, that wasn't the case. And folks, I think for us as Christians, we can be similar to that. We, we don't like to read. I've even met people that read eight novels in a row but then struggle to read three chapters a month of the Bible. It's not because you can't read. It's because you don't, you don't want to read. But we must read. See, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul says, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, the Greek word there is gymnazo. The whole premise of that word is it then got extrapolated into the word gymnasium. So if you look at the dudes doing CrossFit, You know, they are doing a hardcore workout. That's why I never go because it looks wrong. But they are doing a hardcore workout and in a gymnasium. You see, I think for some people, folks, I've been really challenged about this over Christmas. I think for some of us, It is so easy to think of Christianity as a nice moment where we sit with Jesus every now and again, we sing him a nice little song, we give a few dollars every now and again and we sing come by Our" in the mornings with our kids and everything's going to be all right. Christianity is not just a nicey, nice religion. Christianity, seen correctly, is like joining the Marines. It is. We are a family as a local church and we always will be. We are a hospital as a local church, and we always will be caring for people's needs. But we must understand we are also an army. God has a high calling on your lives. He calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel you've received. He calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. That isn't the call of a pastor. That's the call of a Christian. He has an incredibly high calling on our lives. We are called to mission. We are called to brandish the gospel and proclaim the gospel and to know it, to build it into our own lives, to put it into our marriages, our relationships, our friendships, to embody the gospel and to proclaim the gospel in our lives. Christianity was never a nicey nice religion. Read the gospels, read Acts. Jesus was saying, take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't saying, oh, you become a Christian. That's lovely. You'll go to heaven and you just go ahead and live your life and have a great time and I'll come back for you when you're old. No, he's saying, you know what, you become a Christian? Great. Is becoming a Christian free? Absolutely. It is completely and utterly free. Christianity is entered in through thy faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's all we've got. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can add to his finished work. It is all about Jesus. Christianity costs you absolutely nothing. But as you live out your life, does it cost you anything? Yes. Absolutely everything. It's free. and costs you your life. See, as Christians, it's all too easy to say, my life is not my own but then live as if it is. It's all too easy to say, my time is not my own, my, my energies. Lord, I want to I live for you. And then Sunday afternoon, think, I think I live for myself now because I like my life. And in Sydney, I think we're particularly susceptible to that because this is the biggest playground I've ever lived in in my life. And I really like it. But we must guard our hearts because we're called to mission. All that to say then, does it make sense then that God says train yourself for the purpose of godliness and we just pop our Bibles on the shelf? I'll be alright. I'll get round to it. Folks, we have a high calling on our lives and so we need God's word. It's so easy to say, I don't have time to read. I submit to you as a Christian, you don't have time not to read. You don't have time not to given the calling on your lives as believers, given the calling that Jesus Christ himself is calling you to. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This has got everything you need. Everything. just need to read it. And because masters of it, and understand it and build it into our lives. Listen, in 2013, then I want to encourage you, church, make time daily to read God's Word. Make time each and every day. We all make time to wash. We make time to brush our teeth. I think we can make time to read God's Word as well. Listen, just a few practical thoughts on that then. From one stumbling pilgrim to another, I don't want you to think even for a split second that I've got my Bible reading all worked out because I haven't. I still have to work at this. And it is work. It is like going to CrossFit for me on occasions, getting up and reading God's Word. But here's a few thoughts from one stumbling pilgrim to another. Listen, number one, don't overestimate your capabilities because that is such a temptation at the start of the year, is it not? Not? You get to the start of the year and you're all all excited. And the plan can be a bit grand for what we really see God doing. You know, I once heard a phrase, it says, Shoot for the moon, for even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. I got taught that type of thing at grammar school growing up. And you're like, Dave, just shoot for the moon, because you can do this. And if you miss, you'll fall in the stars. Well, when it comes to Bible reading, that is the worst phrase you've ever heard in your life. Because if you shoot for the moon, reading 10 chapters a day, by the third weekend, and you're down to one and a half chapters away a day, you won't be looking at the stars anymore. You'll be lost in space. Okay, that's what will have happened in your life. You will be, you will be gone. You will be deflated. You will hate Leviticus for the rest of your life because that's usually where you are at that point. And you'll just think, "How long, oh Lord? Please come back today, because I just can't bear any more of this. It, it, it's just too much." So don't overestimate your capabilities. It would be unwise if you are not very fit to decide to go to CrossFit and do a three-hour workout, that would not be wise. So it is with God's Word. We need to go from where we are. It's better to do one chapter a day or a verse a day every day than four chapters a day and then have two months off. And Oh, four chapters. Better to let it be every day. So don't overestimate your capabilities, but instead, I want to encourage you, make your, Make a plan. Making a plan is simple, you know, consider when you can read your Bible. Listen, if your game plan is to read your Bible whenever, I submit to you by about third week in, that whenever will be never. Because it's just the way we live. We can think, you know, like I'll just squeeze it in. But we never squeeze it in, do we? There's so many other things that are going on in our lives. And so we have to make a plan, of committed time to, Lord, this is my time. I think for those of you who are small kids, my wife has, has had small kids three times. I think that does have a distinct challenge. And I think in that instance, there is an occasion when we need to fit Bible reading in with different things. Husbands, I would say you need to do all you can to serve your wife in that because you are called by God, Ephesians 5, to wash your wife with the word. That means that you create space for her to be with the Lord. If that's not happening for her, then you are abdicating on your role. That is not right. But for all of us, men and women, we need, to be, we need to be with God's Word. So consider consider when. When can you be with the Lord? And consider what. And there are numerous ways in terms of what. One of the biggest challenges for me, getting into the Bible when I was younger, was just not knowing where to start. And so I would. I'd always start at Genesis. That seemed good. Exodus, that was really exciting. Leviticus, I wanted to die. You know, It was just so difficult. You think, where do I start? I'm not quite sure what to do. Look, consider what. Get yourself a devotional. I bought some in over the Christmas period and they're all on the bookshop. And get them. So, For the Love of God by D.A. Carson, Diamonds in the Dust, or Morning and Evening. They're all parts where they, they give us a chapter to read or a verse to read and then they have some commentary on it. That just helps us understand God's word and bring it into our lives. Also, just Bible reading plans. I'm going to be posting some up on the website this week, so keep an eye out for them. There's lots of different Bible reading plans where you can go with one chapter of the Old Testament, two of the New, where you can read it chronologically, where you can go through the Bible in six months, where you can go through it in six years. There's lots of different means. All that to say, make a plan. Because if you don't make a plan, we'll be chatting about this in August and we'll still be trying to make a plan. You need to be committed. So don't overestimate your capabilities, but instead make a plan and then... Share your plan with others. This is often the missing jewel in the proceedings, I think. Being consistent into God's word is like a gymnasium. Well, I can tell you the truth. Gymnasiums aren't too hot if all you ever do is train by yourself. It's okay for a while, but then it gets really tiring. And it's really hard to to keep going. You need others to spur you on and encourage you on and applaud you on in what you're doing. So I want to encourage you, after you've made your plan, share your plan with others. Share your plan with your life group, with your fellowship groups. Ask them to be praying for you in your plan. Find time within the life group structure. Maybe the start of each of the different meetings. Just spend the first 10 minutes, Right, what has God been speaking to us in our own walk with the Lord this week? What have you read that's come alive to you? What have you been challenged by? What have you been excited by? That will just help us to create structure to ensure that this is happening in our lives, but also we're getting feedback from people and encouragement and applause along the way. All that to say, where does the blessed way begin? It begins here. Number one, the blessed man reads. Number two, the blessed man meditates. He doesn't just read, he meditates. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's very important to realize that worldly meditation and biblical meditation are two very different things um, scripturally. We used to have a guy in the old church I used to serve at and um, that would, would come to Christ's church and sit in the back and actually cross his legs and put his hands like this. And after a while you're like, mate, why do you do that? And he's like, wow, well, I'm meditating. You're like, what are you thinking about? Nothing. You're not meditating. It's biblically defined. You're meditating is worldly defined. In the world, meditation means emptying your mind of all things. Biblically, meditating means filling your mind. It means chewing on God's word. It means allowing it to influence you and come into your soul. I believe cows have four stomachs. So they digest food and then they sick it up a little bit and then they digest it again It's the second stomach... Then they sick it up a little bit and then they digest it to the third stomach. You know, as Christians, that's what it needs to be like when it comes to God's word. We need to be chewing on it. not sure about the sicking up bit, but we need to be chewing on it. And then we need to be chewing on it some more. And then we need to be chewing on it some more. That's what it means to meditate on God's word. Now again, for some, this can prove a challenge. And I would be without doubt one of those people that this is a challenge for. Because for people that don't do things slow, this is real hard. Because to truly meditate on God's word, it involves being slow. You've got to go slow. I don't like going slow. I like going real fast. I, I like to move. I like to motor. I like us to move forward as a local church. I like everything fast in my life, apart from one week a year when I go to Nambucca for Christmas, and I go there, and it's like everybody's in slow motion, and and it's just everything slows down, and I think I need this. I need this. I just my brain needs a rest. But every time I get to the seventh day and it's like, I've got to go back. I've got to speed up. I've got to do something else, you know, because I just, I'm, I'm ready. I can't live. Slow. And that was really exemplified a few years ago before we actually moved to Australia. Through a couple of boating incidents that I had, I went away to West Wales with one of my friends and he had a speedboat. But it wasn't a proper speedboat. It was better than that. It was a rubber dinghy with the biggest engine on the back you have ever seen in your life. It was hilarious. He said, we must not let my wife see this. And I agreed after putting it on Facebook. So so we we are bombing along in this rubber dinghy with this massive engine along the back. And we are going so fast. The front of the boat's right out of the water. We are hanging on for dear life. I nearly died at one point. I let go and I just sort of flew through the air. And the guys at the back of the boat caught me and wrestled me to the ground. It was pretty brutal. But I remember as we were going along really fast, which I just thought was so neat, particularly without helmets, really, really fast. And looking out at the beach, and you couldn't even see it. It was just a blur going past so fast. And I just thought, this is, this is so much fun. We should have had the kids here. You know, It's just so much fun just going past the beach at a thousand mile an hour and watching everything in a blur. Well, a couple of weeks later, and we then went to Grand Canaria as a family, on a family holiday. So I'm looking for this speedboat because I'm thinking my family would really like a speedboat like this. And I found a speedboat. Do you remember? It was a great speedboat. It was this huge thing. And Emma looked at me, because our kids were really like about two and two and, and sort of nothing and four at that point. She looked at me as if to say, are you serious? And I look back and say, yes, I certainly am. I wanted to go on this speedboat, but Emma was having absolutely none of it. And having seen the speedboat and the way it was throwing people around, Lydia wouldn't have been with us to this day. I'm just strapped into that bad boy. But Emma found another boat. She found this, this glass bottom boat. And we got on it and I thought, is, is this boat moving? Um, I mean, is this it? I mean, I'm built for speed. And, and we're just, we're looking out the glass bottom boat. And I, you eventually realize we, we are moving. Clearly, clearly seems to be an electric motor, but we are moving um, just. And then we went out the harbor in Grand Canaria and straight onto the sea. And after we got out the harbor, it was amazing. I mean, you started to look down and you started to see these fish and different types of fish. And just all different colors of the seabed. Different colours of seaweed and the further we went out the the seaweed would change colour again. Different styles of beach and then outcrops of rock all underneath you. And so by the end like the kids can't even see the glass bottom boat because I'm just thinking this is so great. So now we're enjoying the glass bottom boat. Two very different experiences. One real fast in a speed boat. One much slower a glass bottom boat. So why am I telling you that? Here's why. Meditating on God's word is never a speedboat. Meditating on God's word is when we get into the glass bottom boat every day of our lives and we go slow enough so that we can see. We don't have to have exhilaration all the time. Sometimes the exhilaration of speed can be slowing down and simply looking. Spending time with the Lord, meditating, filling our minds with truths, filling our minds with each line You know, as a local church, I would rather we read a verse a day and meditate on that verse and complete the Bible in 40 years than read the Bible in six weeks and remember none of it. This man was blessed because he meditated on the Lord day and night. It's not just reading. It's meditating. So folks, I want to encourage you. Here's a couple of ideas on that. Ask Ask questions of the text. When you're reading the Bible in your own quiet times, having made your plan, having committed to accountability on it and now proceeding with the plan, ask questions of the text. What does this text tell me about God? About Jesus? About me? What would this text have meant to the original hearers, the original guys who are reading this for the first time? What would it have meant to them? Is there any promises in here? that the Lord wants me to take and apply to my life? Is there any examples in here that he wants me to follow? Ask questions of the text. That helps us to meditate and to rethink and really chew on God's word. Memorize specific verses as well. That can be hard for some. I get that. But you're all bright people. We can memorize when we want to. Just have to apply ourselves. And I want to encourage you, pray. Pray as you meditate as well. Psalm 119 verse 8 it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Ask the Lord for help. You ever get to a text and you just think, I have no idea what that means. Well, pray and then as a gift of grace, buy a study Bible. Those two things, hand in hand, can be really helpful. Meditate. The blessed man reads. The blessed man meditates. And finally, third and final point, the blessed man applies see this guy is blessed not only because he reads and meditates this man is blessed because he applies what he reads he takes it and he works out how it was going to figure in his life and then he lives in light of it it's the same happens in james chapter one james chapter one he tells us of this man who looks intently in the mirror of god's word and this man looks at him in the mirror He realizes he needs to make changes, but he goes away making no changes. He thinks he's blessed, but James tells us, no, he's deceived. He's just heard. He says, no, the one that looks intently into the mirror of God's word and then goes away and makes changes, what? He is blessed in his doing. Note verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. Having read, having meditated, this man now does. So he's blessed. He's heard God. He's meditated on the law. And now he applies it to his life. It is so important, church, that we make time to read and meditate on God's word. But it's also really important that we take time to heed his word, to apply it into our own lives. Otherwise, we're we're just deceived. We're just reading, hearing. Thinking we're blessed. Nope. You've just heard. Sometimes people at the end of a Sunday message say, Man alive, that sermon so blessed me. I appreciate the encouragement. But actually, if you get to the end of this message and think it blessed you, you're deceived. Because you're blessed in your doing. It's what you do with it as you leave the doors. That'll reveal whether you're truly blessed or not. Not just hearing. Listen, I want to introduce you to this guy who's going to come up on the screen. Simon Ross. Simon Ross is in the Bourne Ultimatum. Anybody seen the, the Bourne films? Jason Bourne, yeah, there's a few people going, oh yes, they are pretty good. Well, it's this guy. Nobody really remembers Simon Ross and that's because he had a really, really small part in the film. And that was a deliberate move that he had a really small part in the, scene, in the, in the film but it helps with this important illustration. You see, Jason Bourne, for those of you who don't know who Jason Bourne is, Jason Bourne is this mastermind assassin. He's like the SAS ultimate. Okay, This guy is incredible, an incredible soldier. But he has lost his memory. And the whole point of the film is people are trying to kill him, but he can't remember who he is. And yet this guy, Simon Ross, finds out who Jason Bourne is. And so he contacts Jason Bourne and says, listen, I know who you are. Let's meet up because I want to tell you who you are so that you can be saved and so that you can be helped. And so Jason Bourne says, listen, I'd love to do that. Meet me at the train station, which is actually where this guy is right now. And then he gets to the train station. Jason Bourne, who is the mastermind assassin, realizes that this guy, who's just a journalist, is probably going to die if he doesn't listen to him well. So Jason Bourne goes up to this guy, discreetly, puts a phone in his pocket, the phone that you can see right there near his ear, and then walks off. And then he calls Simon Ross. and says, Simon, there are, our enemy is here to try and get us. And so you need to be really careful. You need to listen to me. And you need to listen well. And you need to apply everything I'm telling you. Well, Simon Ross is really panicked at this point. He thinks, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. And he's like, you're not going to die. Just listen to me and I will help you. And I will ensure that you're saved. Well, that was going well for about two minutes. Until Simon Ross, this amazing journalist decides that he's probably like an ultimate SAS assassin as well. And so he starts to talk back to Jason Bourne and says, Jason, I think they're in the bin. I think they're trying to kill me out of the bin. They're going to jump out the bin. And Jason Bourne goes, they are not in the bin. They they are up on the veranda. Do not move. And he's, no, they're in the bin. So he runs into a shop. He nearly gets shot. Jason Bourne protects him and he nearly gets shot, but he gets away with it. And he's hiding in this shop and Jason Bourne says to him, do not come out of the shop. You are going to die. The snipers are up. They are all pointing on you. If you move, you are dead. Well, Simon Ross only has one more line in the film. He runs out of this proceeding shop. The snipers shoot him. He dies straight after this scene and he's lying on the floor dead. But his final words as he's about to run out of the shop, this journalist to the mastermind assassin, Jason Bourne, are, Jason, I think I can make it. He runs, dead. Jason, I think I can make it. Folks, if we don't read God's word, we're crazy. Because on the other end of this line, calling us each and every day of our lives, is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who spins the galaxies. He's the one who made the stars. He's the one that knew your name before you were even born. He's the one that called you before there was even time. The right time, he died in your place so that you may have a life and that in abundance. Through, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he forgave you of all your sin. He adopted you. He is now caring for your every need as a believer. He will one day call you home and even in the interim, he hems you in both behind and before. He's a shade at your right hand by day and by night and he neither slumbers nor sleeps. The one who is calling you each and every day of your lives through this word is God. If we don't pick up this word then and read it and spend time listening to this phone call into our minds... We're crazy. But if we don't then heed it, we're fools. Because when we, having heard God's voice speak to us, then proceed to do the very thing He's saying not to do, we're Simon Ross. And the famous last words of our lives will so often then be, I think I can make it. You know what? You never can. Because the one on the other end of the phone is the maker of heaven and earth who knows you better than know yourself and knows exactly what you need. Folks, we are called, amongst other things, to flee sexual immorality. God knows that we are a weak people, both men and women. God knows He knows the weaknesses we have in our lives. And so he says to us as believers, listen, you must understand, you must flee sexual immorality. When you are tempted towards sexual temptation, you must flee. It's very clear. It's not a hard concept. It's just direct phone calls to your ears. Son, daughter, flee sexual immorality. You know what? In my life, in pastoral ministry, the people that I end up then counseling because they haven't fleed sexual immorality, they've blown it, sometimes even pregnant outside of marriage, or their marriage is now separating because the husband's gone off with a secretary or the wife's gone off with some individual. They're often not people who have gone looking for it. They are often people who, having heard God's word, flee sexual immorality, and heard their pastor's counsel, flee sexual immorality, have been on the end of the phone saying, oh, I think I can make it. And they come running out the shop and Satan takes them down. And you're there picking up the pieces with them. We're called, amongst other things, to not give up meeting together. To be devoted to one another. To carry one another's burdens. To rejoice together. To laugh together. To weep together. To show hospitality to one another. And yet we go through seasons in our lives where we say, You know what, Lord? I see that I need other people. I see it biblically. I see that I'm meant to belong. I see that all Christianity is in the context of a local church. I see that. I see my need to be committed and connected with others. But Lord, I think I can make it. And then you talk to them. After six months or a year where they have given up meeting together. And usually they are as dry as a bone spiritually. They're in a desperate state. The amount of marriages that I get to counsel and seek to help where people have been lone rangers for a long time and they come to church and all we are at the moment for them is a hospital helping them pick up the pieces because God's gone from their marriage. In fact, God's gone for the whole of their lives. They often haven't gone looking for that. They've often not rejected God and run off. They've often just missed a week and then a week turns into two weeks and then two weeks turns into a month and then they feel awkward about really getting involved anywhere. But it's driven by this. I think I can make it. I'll be okay. Folks, we are called in God's amazing grace to spend time with Him. We need God. He tells us that apart from me you can do nothing. And the story of Mary and Martha... He looks at Mary and says, you know, you've chosen the good portion. And everybody's really sad for Martha because she's been, you know, busy busy serving. But the point is, no, Mary's won because she's the one sitting just at the Savior's feet. She's chosen all that she really needs. She's chosen the good portion. Folks, we need to spend time with God. And when our Bible then stays on the shelf, ringing to us each and every day of our lives... And we say, oh, I'm just awful busy. I've got a lot to do. What we're actually saying to God is, Lord, thank you for saving me. I think I can make it. I see in your word that apart from you, I can do nothing. But actually, I believe I can. I think I can make it. Folks, you can't make it. You can't. Neither can I. God's word... Is the words of a loving father who knows you before you're even born and says, You know what? I know you. I know how you're going to thrive. I know what a blessed man looks like. And so, here, read this, meditate on this, apply this, and you know what will happen? In all that you do, you'll prosper. You'll be blessed. It doesn't mean everything will be great. You'll go through in-season and out-of-season, but whatever the season, you'll be stable and durable. You'll be fruitful. You won't perish. Actually, even in the darkest seasons, people will look on and say, man, even now you're being fruitful. And even now you're prospering. That's why it's written. To help us by His grace. And He still speaks to it, through it, to this day. Listen, just by way of conclusion then, if you're an unbeliever here today, I want to encourage you then, heed this word by making Jesus Christ the Lord and Saviour of your life today. See, this Bible is primarily a storybook, a storybook from the start to the end that is about the greatest rescue mission ever told. It starts with God making mankind and breathing air into mankind, making mankind to find our joy and our identity and our security in Him. He was always the source of our joy. But mankind decided that they didn't want him, they'd rather have what he made. They'd rather have the giant playground of the world instead. And so mankind gave themselves to the world, including me. Each one of us are born into that, and each one of us therefore follows suit. It is by very nature sin, because we are rejecting God and instead embracing just the creation. God could have left us like that, and there are serious consequences of being like that. The long-term consequence it talks about in verse 5. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now wicked is not really a word we hear too much these days. A wicked just means sinner. It means me, outside of salvation. It means anybody who's rejected Christ and walked away from him. And yet God, in His amazing grace, 2,000 years ago, came through the personal work of Jesus Christ. God took on flesh and then died in our place, having lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and made it clear that all those who confess in me, who put their faith in me and confess me as Lord, you will be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, me, so that whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. You want to be saved? Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you want to be saved, here's something you need to understand. You can do nothing in and of yourself. Nothing. But Dave, I'm a nice guy. Don't care. In Isaiah, it says that even your best deeds are like a filthy rag before the Lord. You will never do enough. But I give to charity. Fine. I never sworn. Lovely. Doubt it. You're Australian. I pray. I pray. I believe in God. Great. Even the demons believe in God. The only way of salvation is putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's your only hope. Because your issue is your separation with God. Somebody must pay for that separation. And that separation, Jesus said, I'll pay for that, I'll bridge that gap. I will pay for your sin by dying on the cross and I want you then through the greatest exchange you've ever seen to have my perfect life and to have my blessing. Put your faith in me and God will view you through my perfection. Folks, if you are not a Christian here today then heed this word by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Doesn't matter how good you are. I was stinking. I was a mess. And Jesus Christ saved me. And it changed my life. Don't wait another day. If I can help you with that, I'd love to pray with you at the end of the person who brought you. Folks, if you're here today though, and you're a believer, I just want to say in closing, listen, heed this word by positioning yourself this coming year, 2013, to be like this man. For blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. My Friends, would that be our story in 2013? Sometimes we make Christianity so complicated. It's profoundly simple. A child could understand it. Having put our faith in Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Saviour, Our lives are no longer our own. So we bow the knee and we read this and meditate on it and apply it. And by God's grace then would we be blessed and in all we do would we truly prosper. Let's pray. Well Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you in particular for your clarity of your word. Lord, you don't leave us guessing about our lives. You don't leave us guessing as to what you're calling us to do, how you want us to position ourselves in our lives. You make it clear that we're to sit at your feet. You make it clear that we are to position ourselves to experience your grace. For we may never earn your grace. That has been earned through the finished work of Jesus Christ we can position ourselves to experience it just like Mary did oh Lord would you help us then Lord would you help us as a local church to walk then with a limp would you help us to realize our incapabilities would you help us to realize how small in all reality we are before a creator king Lord, would you help us to realize our profound need for you each and every breath? And would we become more and more dependent upon you, Lord, as we spend time in your word, as we meditate on it, as we apply it? Would we truly be blessed in Jesus' name?